have I got a story for you. You know, I often wondered and thought throughout meeting today's guest, back when he was an angry, aggressive, young skateboarding punk, hanging with the wrong crowd, enjoying illicit substances a little too often, having to go to AA meetings and outpatient treatments, all because of his poor judgment. Would those who interacted with him, counseled him, witnessed him, chastised him, have guessed that they were involved with a modern-day billionaire, resort-owning, non-profit-starting, world-traveling skater with a heart of gold? <laughs> I know what you're thinking, dear listener. How many of those former and latter platitudes and cliches are true? Most. For now. But in time, all will be. Speaking of butts, first, a word from today's sponsor, Andre Psyche. Yes, AndrePsyche.com is gone, dear loyal listeners, but Andre Psyche on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is alive and thriving. You see, Andre has adopted a minimalistic lifestyle for materialistic things like mattresses, pillows, websites, cars, his hair. However, his creative libido never accused of minimalism, always fully stimulated, and often viewable on social media, is there for you. You see, Andre is a freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up. It's Andre Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you're looking to friend or follow someone outside of your social circle. We are also brought to you by Dewey Crush, the taste of summer. Now these are fucking delicious, so listen up, listeners. Summer's most sought out and coveted East Coast drink, the Crush, is now available in a ready-to-drink canned cocktail. Available in three thirst-quenching flavors, the original orange, the refreshing grapefruit, and an iconic watermelon. Dewey Crush contains smooth premium vodka, sweet citrus triple sec, fresh fruit juice, and a splash of lemon-lime soda, making it the perfect partner to any summer event. So whether you're going to a barbecue, headed to the beach, or just hanging with your friends, I believe it was chilling, rolling, rolling with the homies, not drinking and driving, but just rolling, or hanging with your friends, crush it, all of it, any of it, with the new Dewey Crush. Now available in Dewey Beach and all over Delaware. For more information, get the drink in your state. Go to DeweyCrush.com. We here at the Getting to Know You Pod need your help. Our sound recording equipment is in dire need of upgrading, because we never actually purchased any. Support this cause by going to our Patreon and subscribing for as little as $2 a month. Your support is essential to improving the quality of this podcast, and is always appreciated. Two bucks a little too much? Well, here are three, three ways to help. Push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to us on. Friend or follow the pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Go to Apple. Write a review. Those are going to cost you nothing but your time. And finally, we're looking for sponsors and advertisers. So if you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach consider partnering with us. The podcast is downloaded coast to coast across the continental United States and internationally. So if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. And now, 
getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. On today's show, we are getting to know Jacob. And for you poor, poor listeners, Jacob has just educated me on 38 different things that I had no idea were out there technologically. Jacob, thank you so much for uh, coming on the pod, letting people get to know you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I um, and I was kind of telling you this earlier, part of what I get a joy out of bringing people on is getting to know them and finding just how different people do different things. And you've dropped words like loom and fervor, fiber, fiber. fiber yeah. yeah. With two R's fiber. And like already I'm, I don't know, man, I'm amazed at your youthful ambition and knowledge, man. I just fucking love it. I love how young people know what they want and they find the resources to get it, man. I, um, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm just trying to like gas you up a little bit, but it's awesome. It's awesome that you have those resources, man. No, yeah, hundred percent. You know, that's something that I teach is, um, it's just you in the world. And as a skateboarder, I grew up, I grew up racing motocross, done a lot of extreme sports, but skateboarding has been my bread and butter. And, um, as I traveled around the world, met a lot of people, I like to uh, relate skateboarding with entrepreneurship and business because, it is a lot like business. It's only you. You fall down and uh, you have to get back up. There's no passing the ball and getting a touchdown or anything like that. This isn't the NBA or NFL. So uh, if you want to win in life, you have to get yourself up and you have to put in the work to do it. And that's the lovely thing about it. That's interesting. Cause, uh, I, so I coach basketball, middle school basketball, and you get a lot of people, life lessons out of sports. And the collaboration part is true, but I've not thought about this skateboarding aspect from the sense of if you really want to do something, man, it's you're a golfer, you're tennis, it's you, you, you don't want to blame an offensive lineman. You don't want to blame a bad pass. You don't want to blame a referee. It's you and your ability, man. That's a, when, when did you realize that? What was your epiphany moment? Were you like 10? And you were like, very young. Yeah, I think it did. It didn't even start with skateboarding. Um, my dad, he works even now in banking, and uh, he started working on computers, fixing cables for people. You know, pressing restart and getting paid for it. And then it, he just grew <laughs> through different companies, and um, that took us all over the the United States, and it took him internationally. And, and that's, I think, that's where it came from because I was in a different school every year. So preschool, I was in one zip code, you know, kindergarten, different zip code, and just so on and so on. So I went to so many different schools, so many different states, was always the new kid, constantly had to put myself out there. And I just learned from a younger age that if I wanted friends or if I wanted someone to, no one's going to come to me and say, hey, you want to come play with us? You know, I was always the odd kid out. Like no one wanted to be with the new kid. So I had to go and make friends and I had to put myself out there and say, Hey, this is, this is me. This is who I am. You know, who are you guys? And I'm here to, I'm here to like be involved. Enhance your life. I'm not a jerk. <laughs> it's cool if we have. <laughs> exactly. Dude, why is your dad moving so much? 
Like just chasing just opportunities? Promotions. Yeah. Hey, we have this new opportunity. You can make more money here if you, but you have to relocate from, you know, North Carolina to Florida. And then it was Florida back to North Carolina and then South Carolina and then Illinois and then Mexico, Panama. So, no shit. Uh, yeah. Panama. Dude, I've, I've, I don't think I've spoken to anybody from or with experience in Panama. How long were you in Panama? So my parents actually split up whenever we lived in Illinois, spent about nine years there. That's where I, that's where I like to think I'm from. Cause I, you know, end of <laughs> elementary school through my associate's degree. So I really grew up outside okay. of Chicago and, um, my dad lived six years in Mexico. So it was like, I was visiting him in the summers, visiting him on holidays, getting to know all over Mexico. And then he lived three years in Panama and, um, yeah, it's a, I love Panama. My brother actually, he fell in love with it there, uh, married his wife, and they live on a nice little island outside of Panama City. They're online entrepreneurs and just, you know, built their house, doing their own little thing. What's something, I'm little familiar with Mexico culture, been to Cancun, um, Cabo San mm. Lucas, whatever, you go to Cancun, you hit up like the typical, typical like, Chichen Itza, Playa del Carmen, you know, Isla de Mujeres, you hit up whatever the hour drives are. But so I understand that culture a little bit. I'm curious about your experience with Panama culture, because I, I, aside from the canal, I don't know if I would reference anything else to it or associate anything else with it. Well, a lot of people don't know that they use U.S. currency. So oh, no the sure. dollar is what you use there. So it's, it's not like, oh, I'm going to go there and I'm going to live off of $5 a day. No, you're still getting $5 drinks from Starbucks. The rent is still one to $3,000 a month. Huh. Uh, they do have, instead of a quarter, they have a Balboa. That's their currency. So you, you get a Balboa coin instead of a quarter. But it's just 25 cents. Okay. So it's the exact same equivalent. Yep. Any idea why that is? Um, I don't know. Maybe it was with the the U S and the Panama canal and just being there and having it like the international hub for people coming, going through, but not too sure. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I didn't realize that. And I'm, now I'm wondering, are there other countries out there? That oh yeah. I'm sure. You know, that just use the U S currency and just keep it as a, as their standard. Yeah. Not, not that I'm aware of around Panama. You know, I've backpacked through, like Nicaragua, Honduras, Costa Rica. Holy all shit, you're a drug through. mule? No, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just basically, I was just like, a, had my backpack and a skateboard and wanted to experience the different cultures. All right, man. Well, can we, shit, can we stay there for a little bit? Like you're legit doing that. So that was a stereotype back in the day, at least for me, um, maybe early 2000s, the whole hostel scene in Eastern or Western Europe, you just want to go and you're going to like, oh, I'm going to ride the rails, get the Euro pass and just live life and hike for three months. Um, yeah. Like it, that's basically what you did, but in South America. So like I said, my parents divorced. I was probably like fifth grade. And then I grew up, was competing, skating, got a sponsorship, did that out in Illinois. And then, um, you know, just doing random stuff through middle school and high school, got into some bad stuff. I never really fit in. I was the outcast skateboarder. People didn't like me. I lived in a super uppy, rich zip code. 
And um, I was just seen as, you know, this drug addict skateboarder because you, you associate drugs with skateboarders. <laughs> and that was when I had, there was a turning point where I had to make a decision. Do I want to go down this path and not do anything with my life or am I going to make a change? And, um, you know, long story short, I graduated high school a year early and then I made the decision to complete my associate's degree by the time my friends graduated high school. So whenever my friends were walking uh, to get their high school diploma, when I should have been, I was getting my associate's degree. So just the maturity. Well, then I, I want to actually back up a little bit, man, to know a little more about this. Were you the hooligan skateboarder or was it just the image people put on you? Oh, completely. Yeah. Well, I, I was a redneck moving to a Yankee state. So I was like, <laughs> had the accent. I had, there was just, who is this hillbilly, you know, wanting to play with us. And my friends to this day still make fun of me. The same ones that made fun of me are now my friends. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tough to get in because I immediately was bullied. I immediately was the outcast. And that transition as I got older, going through puberty, as becoming the bully, it was like, okay, you want to push me? I'm going to push back. And uh, oh. it, it started to flip. So then you just became a straight up ass to kids. Yeah. In a, in a sense, um, I just <laughs> didn't tolerate anyone's bullshit. You know, because I started getting bigger. My friends, you know, I worked out with them and it was like I was just waiting for someone to say something to me so that we can start a fight. And it got into getting into fights, going to court, getting charges, you know, all like misdemeanor under 18 random stuff. But yeah. then it, that was when I had to make that decision of uh, well, what am I going to do? Do I want to keep doing this and or do I want to change my life? Dude, so I remember high school fights and it's pre- it's just about pre-cell phones. It's more maybe people had flip phones, but you're just talking all day about where you're going to meet up. You're going to keep talking shit. Man, I'll get you when you get off that school bus. Hey, we'll meet in this field kind of a thing. But mm -hmm. I don't remember people getting charges unless they actually fought in school because then the authorities are around. You know, that's that's how it happens. So were you yeah, scrapping in school? Was, there was one altercation where someone went up to me and my ex on the bleachers and like held a banana to his pants and like shoved it in, in her face and was like, you know, just saying vulgar stuff about it. And I stood up and I was going to just attack this guy. And she was like, no, don't do it. You're in school. You're going to get in trouble, you know, yeah. fight him after school. So then I was like, I'm going to find you after school, like that type of thing. And it was like third period. So I had the whole day of just Dude. rage. Yeah. And then sure enough, I'm walking home. I didn't see him. And um, there was this one like hot dog shop where everybody got picked up at. And I saw him there and I just gave my backpack to my friend and I'm like, hold on, like, dude, you got to hold my backpack. Hold on. I'm going to go beat the shit out of this guy. And that's, that's what I did. I just beat the shit out of him. And I just walked home next day, you know, everyone's standing up to say the pledge of allegiance. And then there's an officer coming in handcuffing me in the first hour English class. No way. Like he, yeah. he got, he got whooped so bad, went home, parents wound up forcing him to Oh, stay. his mom picked him up and was screaming out of the car, like, let go of my son, you know, whatever. And then I just left that book day because I didn't want the cops to get there. But, you know, he knew my name and they went to the police and he was really badly hurt. Uh, so they pressed charges and I got like, you know, whatever, just some misdemeanor bodily harm. And yeah. they were just random stuff. But because I'm like 14, 15. Right. But that whole summer I did maybe like 80 hours of community service. I remember just watering plants for an entire summer at an old person home. Dude, that's the best. That community <laughs> service, I had to, um, 
I, I even forget what charge I got, but I had community service. I had to organize books in a library attic in the middle of the summer with no AC for like a book sale. And it took all week. And like, it was just, you're just like, you know what all this does is make me want to do more stupid shit. Cause I'm just angry that I'm here. <laughs> yeah, it was, it wasn't an old person. It was hospice. And I had to work oh. both outside on the roof and in the basement. And that, that was, I worked for like, you know, 10 hours a day. Cause I had so many hours to complete, yeah. but that was a creepy place to work. You know, so many people dying every day and being in the basement and it just, I constantly had cold chills being there. Yeah. Or like that, vibe. that vibe had to be weird as hell for a young kid. Cause I feel like you're, yeah. you're in your head anyway, as a young kid, you know, you're all yeah. about those spirits. Yeah, it was not a good place, but that definitely, you know, I had to go back to court at the end of the summer and um, I did maybe 10 or 15 hours more than I was supposed to. And um, the judge was just like, yeah, do you, I remember them questioning me, like, do you feel bad about this now that you, and I'm like, no, I, I did more than I had to do. You know, I, he deserved what he had coming to him. Very disrespectful. He needs to learn some manners and he had what he was coming to him and Dude, that, so I initially, when you told me, when you said the banana story, the fact that you get your ass whooped in front of a hot dog stand, like the irony of the banana and the irony. hot dog, <laughs> I'm just like putting that together. And I'm like, it would have been like, if it were a movie, you would have grabbed a hot dog and like just slapped him with it while he was down or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Or like had him bite. Oh, don't want to get too graphic, but like I could see it playing out multiple ways where like it would yeah. be a prop. It did not work out for him. And yeah, I had to do the community service, but I learned a lot of lessons from there, you know? So I, I guess two things. How bad was he like whooped up? Did he have like broken ribs, broken anything, or was it more just bruising? And No, just like black eyes, swollen face, cuts, oh, broken yeah. nose, that like bleeding, that type of stuff. So whenever they go to the cops, it was like, obviously his face was bashed in. Yeah. And, um, yeah. But just looks a little more dramatic than actually is severe sure. severity. Wise. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't break his arm or anything like that, but God, dude. you know, and they, that, they wanted to post charges and that's what happened. It's amazing that his mom was picking him up and saw it. That's that. I so, love that. Yeah. She was honking the horn. She never got out of the car, but she was just screaming, honking the horn. And then we left, you know, I've had other fights too. Like people coming up to the skate park, the football kids like, Hey, we want to find Jacob and fight him. I'm like, all right, let's fight. And then, you, you know, serious? none of that happened. Yeah. Just like, uh, uh, nothing happens cops wise. You know, I've had, yeah. Or even just organizing fights where, you know, my friend, my, one of my best friends, he wanted to be a pro UFC fighter. So we would always organize like random street fights in his backyard. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Dude, take me to one of those. Like, are you charging tickets? <laughs> oh no, not charging tickets, but just, you know, the random flip phones, get them out. And it's, we're hyping it up through the school for a couple days and who's going to fight who. And, uh, and they just go bare knuckle at it. And that, that was interesting. I like that. <laughs> Being the promoter. No, I was not a promoter. I was more of spectating some of them more than I was engaging in them. But the, the point of that was there were a lot of fights going on, whether it was organized or not. You know, you've just settled your beef with people, whether it be at the skate park or at the forest preserve or outside of school, in school. You know, that one, it just seemed that uh, they wanted to take legal action and really just, you know, try to screw me over. 
Oh no, yeah, I'm talking about the the UFC fighting. The like well, yeah, it was backyard. like backyard high schoolers just punching each other. That's that's man. That's how does that idea? Are, are you just seeing that on cable, or like you felt like you could just create a spot? Like you got refs coming in, and you're talking to these dudes. It's like, hey man, you want to fight? You're in there. I I guess in my head, I would be the dude that would try and to be like passing along fake information to get the dudes hyped to want to scrap against each other. <laughs> like that's who I would be. So I, I as I'm it was mainly loud, between people that already didn't like each other, right? Like, hey, you, you don't like this guy. Why don't you fight him? Because my friend, um, like I said, he was so into UFC. So every time we'd hang out, he was like, let's spar. And this guy was like a lineman for the high school football team. He was like 220 and 6'3". And I was not that big, you know, like 5'9 <laughs> and 125 pounds. So um, he taught me some things and we would always spar together, but that was it with him and I, but he liked to see, he liked to be in that environment. So he wanted to organize these types of things. And since we were friends in that friend group, it was like, yeah, let's go to Brett's house. He's two people are fighting. We don't know who they are, but let's go and check it out. And anything come with these UFC fights? Like what happens to the guy who gets his ass whooped? Just shame, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think it didn't ever got like serious enough where you had to like call an ambulance or somebody gets knocked out and you're worried someone's dead. No, nothing like that. Usually whenever they got super hurt, it was like, that was it. That, they were just done. Okay. And what'd you do for referee wise? That was, that was, uh, just one person. He was just, the guy who organized it was like, like I said, he loved the UFC. So he was the ref. He was the one organizing. Oh, the lineman. See, I thought, the, so the lineman was the ref. He wasn't like the fighter. He was both. It just sometimes he would, <laughs> he just depended on who was fighting, you know? Got you, got you. But yeah, it's just random high school stuff. Yeah, yeah. there was, Um, I, I never went, I didn't have the balls, man. I'm such a bitch. But there was this boxing phase where they would record it and they'd have like boxing fights where you could call people out and, you know, <laughs> you'd box up in some like country club home loft and just watching the videos of um dudes getting tapped like twice like a quick one two to the face they were done yeah. done over you win and like it was <laughs> so rare to see guys like actually go at each other like take a punch and then not quit but come back with ang like like the, they took the energy from the punch and they absorbed it and then they tried to give it back that seems yeah. like such a rare trait within within people. Yeah, like you said, I don't I don't really care for fighting. Um, what I've learned out of all of my stupid things growing up from middle school <laughs> and high school is that, like I said, I was bullied. I saw the bullying side, and then I became the bully. And um, I've learned that if I can do such harm, and if you can do such negative negativity to people, like bad in this world there's there's horrible people in this world if you can hurt someone so much then imagine what you can do on the opposite side imagine how many lives you can inspire you can influence and like what change you can be and uh that's where i'm at now so the opposite side of the spectrum yeah because it's got to balance out right like it's a counterweight if you what, what's the law of um physics energy is not created or destroyed or for every action there's equal and opposite reaction like if you're yeah. gonna abide by those as much as you want to be a jerk, you can absolutely be that intensely positive and you can, 
I, I guess what would like, what's a good word for being like, I'm going to beat you up so good. You're going to be rich. Like, like I'm going to pound you, right? Like those are all negative connotations, but I can't think of a word like a positive beat up word, but it does make sense that you'd be able to do that for somebody. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it, whenever I reflect on it, it makes me think about the times people made me sad and the times in class where I, I would just no, for no reason, make fun of people just to like, get a laugh out of the class or, yeah. you know, and, and I think of that and I'm like, that was very shitty of me and it doesn't make me feel good. And now I, I am, you know, here present, I can't go back in the past, but I can control what I say to people in the future. I can control how I do it. So if there's an opportunity, I'm always aware of that now to like, if I'm in public or wherever, you know, if I'm sitting at a restaurant, if I have the, if I can see that the server is stressing out and it's super busy, instead of being that one guy that's a dick and leaves a $0 tip, yeah. you know, maybe tip 40, 50% because you know, you know, I've spent seven years in the restaurant industry. I know what right. it's like to be backed up. Um, and then she's expecting a $0 tip because of the service, yeah. but instead you put the, the coin and she goes back and can clock in, you know, a, an amazing tip. And, I remember what that feeling's like and I, now I have the opportunity to give that back. Dude, that'll get that'll get you through your last 5 6 tables. You know what I'm saying? You're in the weeds, you you get quadruple sat. You know you you got to like pick out one or two tables to just cut your losses with and be like, exactly. "Sorry, man. Like y'all are never going to get your water filled. I'm not going to re you're not getting any extra bread. If if yep. you need pepper on the salad, it ain't happening and I'm not clearing your plates in a timely manner." And you're just like, "Fuck it." And when you get that, you servers are like, it just makes your night because it's not like you're intentionally neglecting. You literally mm -hmm. just, it, it, you're treading water and you're drowning and you just can't get to everything. It's the management for sure. Yeah. I worked at um, Longhorn Steakhouse and I also worked at a like four and a half star Canadian steakhouse. And um, <laughs> the, the difference was they... Uh, at Longhorn, they would just seat me an entire section. I would have 10 tables at one time, you know, and then have a party in the back with with just me. How can you refill so many iced teas for people? And then this person wants ketchup and whatever. So no you're giving such poor service. Uh, but then whenever I stepped up and do, you get into finer dining, they give you two tables. Yeah. You know, quality, that's it. Quality. Because they're not trying to flip, man. It's about the experience. Yeah. It's the but you make three times the amount of money because of the menu prices. You know, two people go and sit down and spend a hundred dollars without ordering appetizers or, or alcohol. Yeah. Um, right. So you're busting your ass at one place for maybe $80 a night and you're serving like 20, 30 tables or you just serve two and you still make the same amount of money. Yeah. That, dude, that's funny, man. I was a fine dining uh, guy, grew up busting tables and then just worked my way through the restaurant bartended, got into the kitchen for a little bit, did the whole banquet thing, you know, it was on the beach. And I remember some of my friends, I never made the jump to the bartending of like the $2 bar night or $2 beer night dollar shot where it's just like a thousand people going to see a band where you, everyone's just throwing you money because they're so drunk. But I did love the fact that you could have like almost this weird little relationship with your customers in the fine dining. And they seem like that's what they almost went there for was for the server, for the most part, to enhance the meal, to enhance the night, to make that recommendation, to give them that insight on a great wine that pairs or, you know what, man, really, let me steer you. This actually tonight's special is really good or 
throw some sort of dessert recommendation or give a compliment at the right time to like break the mood if it's serious. And and that's five, ten dollars. Easy. Anytime oh, yeah. you're knowledgeable, man. It's just extra money that these people throw at you. So much better than sweating 15, 20% tip average on like making sure French fry endless fries don't fall out. Yeah, it's the quality of people that go in there, right? So they expect a certain level of service because of what you want to call it, income or, or whatever. But people are celebrating anniversaries at nicer places. Yeah. They're going there to get good service. And it makes me think of, you know, silent service. You can't do that whenever you're, whenever you have five to ten tables. But I always, I really like this because I don't want to be asked, I don't want to have to be the one asking if I'm in a restaurant. Same thing when when I go to get a haircut and um, yeah. I still haven't found the right person to be able to like cut my hair. But if if I was the professional at it, then I would cut my own hair. You know, whenever I go to some place and, and there and there's the difference between asking you like, hey, what are you looking for? And then like not knowing it's like I just want to look good. You know, like, you're the <laughs> professional. I can trust you. And I've told them this. I said, hey, you see how it is now? Just make it look good. I've got a meeting tomorrow or I'm shooting videos. Yeah. You know, I just want to look clean cut. Don't make me look like, like shit. Yeah. And they're stunned. They're like, well, what do you mean? Do you need like a four? Do you need a three on the side? Like yeah. uh, how short do you need the top two and a half inches? I'm like, I don't, I have never measured and I don't know what a two to four means. Um, but I came here because I trust you guys. And it almost means different things to different stylists or barbers, man. And that, that's why people, when you find that barber, you stay with them. Just like when you find the way a restaurant makes that steak. You stay with it because even medium well or the seasoning that goes with it is different on whoever the line cooks there. Somebody puts a little extra butter on there. Somebody's heavier with the salt. You know, somebody likes to char one end and then flip it over. And hairstyle, that's funny, dude. I've run into that too. And it looks like we basically both have that same kind of white boy-ish fade (laughs) where you just fade it up. You want a little bit of hair on the top to – have exactly. some sort of personality, but it's not like, yeah, give me a two on the sides, a four up in there, and I want a two and a half finger length with a high fade on the top. Because then I find they almost get like too nervous because now they're not cutting hair the way they see it as a professional. It's like they're trying to follow Austin. furniture instructions. And you're like, dude, it, it's it, there, there is no one way, man. Like I want you to understand if I got a bump in my head and you feel it, Cover that shit up, man. Like square it up, make it look good. Yeah, and exactly. So it doesn't matter if you're cutting hair, if you're serving, you're at an auto shop, like whatever. It's it's appreciating where you're at and what you're doing, and just loving it. Because I've gone to barbers where you know I've literally said that, and I say I just want to look good. You know, some clean cut, leave some on the top. This is what I do. I don't use product, whatever. And then we just start talking, and she's and then I start. She's engaging, and then. 30 minutes later, you know, I look great. And I haven't said a single word. She didn't ask me any other questions. I just said, I want to look good. And it's like, she executed on it, you know, and those are the types of people, whether you got a restaurant or not, that are going to deliver on the service. And then you will do your part to, um, you know, pay them. Yeah. And it's ownership, right? Like those people get empowered and probably feel a sense of pride in their employment versus just being a worker. I bet like saying shit like that to like, if you, I used to love people be like, well, what's good, Sean? And I'd be like, oh damn, you like, I matter to you. Oh, you're, you're expecting me to know 
what actually will meet and make your night. And like, it always made me feel like, like in a weird way, important more than just like a server making $2 an hour. And I bet any profession like that, it just, it's almost like a respect of their skill and their training versus you're just a hair cutter. Oh, you just are a stylist kind of a thing. I, I think that's a great mentality to go about the service industry. Cause they are. Professional. I love the service industry. I, you know, I write this in my goals every day too. I, I have intentions on owning, you know, resorts and hotels. And I love the experience of just being able to go somewhere and say, you, you take a trip. And I remember this, you know, my dad, we would go out to like all inclusive resorts in, in Panama when I go see him. So we'd take a, take a cab to the resort, we'd walk in, they say, hi, Mr. Jenkins. You know, these guys barely speak English, but they're like, hi, Mr. Jenkins. Let me take you to the receptionist to check in. It's like, how does this guy know my dad's name? You know, right. we just got out of the cab. But they, they know because we have a reservation at that time. And from the whole way, you're not paying for food, you're not paying for drinks the whole time you're there, and they just take care of you. And um, they know what you need when you need it. Yeah, antis- anticipatory. Like it, it's amazing someone who can anticipate a need, how much that means to someone who's receiving it and, and how loyal customers will be if their needs are met and anticipated. Yeah. Dude, see, that, that that's what I'm talking about. I'm not around people who say, I want to own a resort. I'm maybe around people that are like, I want to own a condo. I hope, <laughs> I hope, I hope to have an acre of land. So that's a legit goal of yours to own an actual resort. Yeah. I envision myself owning uh, apartment complexes, resorts, restaurants. You know, there's a guy who has influenced this for me, Tillman Fertitta, if you know him. Isn't he the uh, owner of the Houston Rockets? Yeah. Okay. Do, sure. I, I've not listened to him. I know um, he took... <laughs> And just from sports talk, it's part of the cap issue because he owns basically like all of Las Vegas or something, right? Oh, he owns, he owns, I believe, Rainforest Cafe. He owns so many restaurants and hotels all around the world. Yeah. COVID, so basically, just to wrap it up, COVID fucked him. And that's the whole debate in basketball circles is does he have the liquidity to spend the money to make Houston a winner? Or is that why he's trading away assets and he's trying to tank because you get, you know, higher talent for lower uh, annual salary? They, I, I know the NBA, the, the playoffs or whatever, I know nothing about. Yeah, no, that. It's, but that, it's that's all going the term. on right now, right? Yeah, exactly. But that so the NBA draft lottery just happened and they got the second pick. And towards the end of Houston season, he had traded away basically his best two players this season, took back a guy who everyone knew wasn't going to play took a flyer on some guys, winds up cutting them. And the drama or the speculation behind it was COVID. The dude's worried about bottom line. We don't have fans in attendance. Nobody can predict the income, the revenue that's going to come from this business that was supposed to be growing exponentially. Like these owners are making an extra 30 million every year just for owning a franchise. And now your profession is bleeding with everything you own. And this kind of hobby, though it's, I guess, not really a hobby for him, it's another business venture, is also bleeding cash. Yeah. What are you going to do? So it's interesting when you compare dudes like that to like tech fund people, like the Golden State Warriors are owned by some techies where it seems like they have unlimited, like Facebook type money, where it's like, oh, you need a billion? Sure, here you go. Um, 
sorry, man, but that, that was a long way of, I guess, connecting to, um, Fatita. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. But I, I think I would say he's fine. Uh, he's going <laughs> to do fine. <laughs> they, they, you can take all of the money from the richest people in the world and give it to the poor people. And in a matter of time, the rich will have it back in their hands because it's not the amount that matters. It's who you become in the process. Right. Uh, so, you know, one of, I listen to Jim Rohn religiously. He's like, I idolize this guy. And he says, uh, if someone gives you a million dollars, best you become a millionaire so you can keep the money. Because, I mean, if you look at the lottery, I mean, who plays the lottery? Like middle class, lower class. You don't see a lot of people in the like super wealthy 1% playing the lottery because they're, they're investing. They're not gambling. It's a waste. And, I, yeah, I just made that shift myself. Even just sports gambling. I, I got into sports yeah. gambling. It was in Delaware for a little bit. And then I was like, why the fuck am I doing this, man? Why don't I get into day trading? Because if the stock exactly. if the stock takes a loss, at least I still have the fucking stock. The game's over, the money's just gone, gone. gone. Yeah, and I'm like that. That makes no sense. There's no dividend. There's no annual return. You can't. I don't. It. I I agree with you on that. That's a well. You know, most people that win the lottery, majority of them, they lose the mo- they lose it or spend it within the next couple of years. Like in less than five years, I believe it's much sooner than that. You know, and they're winning millions of dollars. And yeah, after taxes, whatever they take that, but you're still left with a huge lump sum of money, and then it goes where, you know? Um, Jet skis. Get, yeah, depreciating like, assets. <laughs> so so ridiculous. My friend, he just he always messages me about he he'll go and like play some slot machine in a in a gas station and win five hundred dollars. I'm like, dude, how do you do this? <laughs> he's like the luckiest guy. Every time he goes, I swear he's winning money left and right from gambling i'm like it's tempt it's tempting me to go and do it but i'm like i'm not gonna get my hands in that dude i got a guy i work with man and um so in delaware they just started you can play single game bets on football only at three casinos that are state run and you can get on the state lottery if you go parlay which is place a bet on three games so this dude on Sunday, every Monday he comes in talking about how much he won. Man, I had this 18 parlay. I put down 100 bucks. I won like 1,500. And then if you keep asking him, he actually has like 50 of those tickets where he's putting $100 each. And I'm like, dude, do you have like an Excel spreadsheet? I'm just very curious on your in and out budgeting on this, man. He's like... Dude, I get so wasted, man. I'll like fucking lose tickets. And, you know, halftime, we're trying to make shit back. And I, I know I'm up. I know I'm up. And you're like, do you know you're up? Yeah. Like, it, exactly. it, it sounds like you have that one story that makes it hella tempting. And if he posted it on social media or if he, like, whatever was messaging me about it, I like, dude, it, it fucks with me. I'm like, dude, I could do this. I'm just as smart as him. I can research some sports teams and make insightful guesses. But really, like, I don't know if that is a pure profit for those kind of people, man, because I don't think they they actually track the losses like you would have to in a business. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between taking taking risks and taking like stupid risks. Gambles. Yeah, exactly. So I, I do think that you should be aggressive, especially, you know, younger people listening. Uh, if you don't have like a, a family and kids yeah. and whatever your house on the line, but that take risks. I actually just posted this on my uh, social media 
yesterday. It's about taking massive action and taking risks. And I explain about, you know, my travels and why I took risks because that's made me who I am today. If I didn't see like three-year-olds sleeping on the street in Nicaragua or kids that were my nephew's age huffing glue naked in the street, you know, or bungee jumping in Costa Rica, you know, taking just risks I never would take right now living in Arizona, especially through a pandemic. Like, how many opportunities do you get to, to take that trip? A lot of people have, and they idolize these trips where they're like, oh, I wish I could go to Bali or Indonesia, or this is in my bucket list. But your buck, their bucket list sits there until they're too old and yeah. they can't do it. You have to do it now. And enjoy it. And enjoy yeah. it, man. No, I, I agree. And part of, sometimes people will look at like a, a trip like that or they don't understand the experience is the payoff. So even if you take a risk and it's a loss, if you're getting experience and learning, especially when you're younger and you actually reflect and think on those things, it's going to do nothing but make the next risk that more likely to hit because you're now applying the skills that you've learned, the downfalls, where you went wrong, what you didn't analyze, what you didn't anticipate for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the biggest thing that people say that stops them is, oh, I don't have money. But if you look at their habits, you know, a lot of people drink or they gamble or they smoke, you know, nicotine is huge right now with young people and vaping. Is vaping really? I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to cut you off, but like is smoking or is it vaping? Both. Yeah. Really? Vaping. One of those vape pens will cost anywhere from 10 to $30 and they last in between a day to three days. So you think oh, a $20 e-cig that'll last three days. And if you are buying it and you're hanging out with your friends, they always want to puff it. So now it's lasting like a day, day and a half. And you're spending at least, you know, a hundred to $300 a month just in vaping. I know someone who I've mentored through my program, uh, our mindset mastery, because we dive into goals, habits, targets, finances, all this. And once we got into the financing portion and, um, you know, he started tracking his finances, he realized, he's like, I remember he, whenever we had our coaching call, he said, man, I'm, I'm spending like over $600 a month just in, in E-Sigs. Oh, and I said, shit. dude, I, like at one point in my life, that was my rent, you know? Yeah, seriously, man. I'm like, dude, that's an E. That's like a fucking Mercedes car payment. If you wanted that kind of cachet and you want that social cred and you thought it would get you. Like if you were a real estate agent, it might be worth having a $600 car payment for a Mercedes because if you're taking people around, that's going to give them a lot of confidence in you. Yeah. You know? Like that's where my mind goes. Like I, I, as a school teacher, I wouldn't want a $600 a month car payment. But I, I could definitely find something to do with $600 a month. Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a lack of education, you know, and, and then you don't realize that, well, $600, dude, if you, like, for example, you want to go to Indonesia, a flight's going to cost you 600 to $1,000. So if you just quit smoking and quit drinking and save up for three months, yeah. you'd have a round trip ticket to go. And then all you have to do is pay for your food. Yeah. And yeah. just like that, one of your bucket lists is checked off. No doubt. Yeah. And the food that you would normally, the money you would normally be spending um, in the States is basically going to cover what you're going to spend in Indonesia. You know, like your life living expenses are almost going to just transfer over there anyway. So you don't have to have a ton of extra money to have those experiences. Really, it's just the cost of getting there and then maybe like the room and board. 
Yeah. Well, one easy exercise you can do is, uh, have you heard of the book, The Richest Man in Babylon? I have not. I've heard of the lady who turned to salt because she looked back. No, I don't know. I don't know about that. I just know one. It wasn't Babylon. That was Sodom and Gomorrah reference. I was trying to like <laughs> mirror it up with like an Old Testament thing. It just didn't work out. It was a terrible joke. It's an old, it is a really old book. It talks about coins and purses and that type of stuff. But the point is every, for every dollar that you get, you, um, you, oh, you basically donate 10%, you invest 10% and you save 10%. So every dollar that you make, you live off 70. And, um, then there's the three bucket system that basically just says whenever you get a dollar, you disperse in three buckets again for an investment, a savings and your expenses or a rainy day fund. Um, I like to merge them because everyone's different. We all have our different living expenses. If you can live off of 30% and save 70%, then I would flip it just because it says 70% doesn't mean you have to do that. Yeah. You don't um, want to spend. That's exactly. Yeah, dude, that's, so is that not, I don't know, man. Is that just restaurant in you and me? Maybe I just got that kind of knowledge because I was around some older heads that passed it on to me. I didn't get that kind of knowledge from my my family. But I what I'm thinking is like, are you finding that that's not kind of common knowledge and practice with youth, people who are transitioning from high school, transitioning out of college, getting into their careers? No, I don't. I think there's a golden opportunity. That's why I created uh, my company called The Grind. And it's exactly what we focus on as young entrepreneurs. And what I do is I help build their foundation so that they don't have to spend the next five, 10 years figuring it out. You know, I already went through it. I've done the dirty work to, and now I've put it into a program and incorporate coaching to where I give you your foundation. If you, here's your, here, let's build you your solid foundation that you can grow and scale off of, you know, but if you're, spending the next five years with bad habits, with poor money habits, you know, uh, poor relationships, you're hanging around the wrong people. You're not going to get to where you want to be. And, um, I'm helping people cut that curve. And because I guess how, like that's a study of your, was that your associates? Were you, was your original associates your senior year, quote unquote in business? Um, it was a focus in business, but you know, the associate's degree, your first two years of college is just, uh, math, English, yeah, history, and, a, and an elective. Yeah. So once I found that out, I was like, why do people spend so much money going to a university? If it's just the same shit you learned in high school on a college <laughs> level. It's so true, man. It's so true. So I went to a community college and I knocked them all out and I actually went to the the dean and I said I would like to take overload classes because this is like this is it I'm, I was determined to get my associates in one year so I was approved for it and I made the like international honors society and some kind of alpha beta crap yeah <laughs> but it was it was that I would say that that was the push it was I had a focus I had a, a priority in mind and that's what I teach is you have to find your why you have to find a purpose to, to pull you into the future. Why did that matter so much to you? Well, first I wanted to get the hell out of high school. And then I wanted to just prove to myself that, okay, if I'm going to make this change, I'm going to, I'm going to hurry up. And I wanted my master's degree by 21. That was the first goal. And then I got the associates and, and um, I had a conversation with my dad. This was like, October, September, October. I remember having a conversation with him. I'm like, it's done. You know, I had finished 
everything for the semester. And the way that I worked was I'd color code a calendar and I would, um, you know, what people don't realize the professors, they give you the syllabus. It's not like high school where you have to figure out what you're doing the next day. Yeah. They give you the whole semester in one piece of paper, your exams in three weeks, you know, this paper is due on Tuesday. You have your math quizzes are always on Wednesdays. Um, so I organized it all in a calendar and I did all of the homework every day. All I did was homework and, and essays and exams. And I studied for the future tests. So all I had to do was show up, pass in my homework that I had already printed out and done three weeks ago. And I basically just showed up for the exams and, um, I just wanted to be done so I could get on to the next thing, get on with my life without school. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's, I don't want to be insulting in any way. Cause I'm, I've been reflective about like arbitrary numbers and I'm not saying your numbers are arbitrary, but I find myself doing this, even with this podcast, setting dates, setting amounts, setting downloads as like metrics of success. And I, I reflect and I'm like, why does that number matter to me? Cause it's the next number. Am I just some like weird selfish capitalist where I'm like, Oh, if I round up, 7,000 is the next number that I got to get or 2,000 per month is the next get. And I'm curious, master's by 21, like why, why 21 for your master's? How'd that number get set? The age you drink, you know? <laughs> I, was um, I thought it was that simple. <laughs> that's your next milestone. It's like, okay, I'm 18. Now what? 21. Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, you, I, you set such... People, some people will say, don't set your goals too big. I like to think that your goals can never be too big because my mom always told me, if you have a goal, double it or triple it. Because even if you only hit a third of it, you're still, you still accomplished your goal that you had initially. So right. if you set your goals too low, the worst thing that you can do is achieve them because then you're like, now what? Yeah. You know, I hit, I, whenever I had that idea that I'm going to get my master's by uh, 21, I had to work my ass off for that associates the first year, but then I'm sitting there. Wow. I have my associates degree in one year. My friends just graduated high school. So do I want to go to college for my bachelor's, you know, right away. And that was a conversation I had with my dad. And he was like, listen, school's always going to be there, but you're not always going to be 17 again. So why don't you think about taking a year off and just chilling? And I was like, well, what would I do? He's like, well, go somewhere. <laughs> And that night I booked a one-way ticket to Nicaragua, Managua, like the worst, the, the, the worst capital in Central America, aside from El Salvador. And why there? Just, just spun the globe and picked it. Stop, dude. You're, you're just, that can't be true. That... Well, he lived in Panama, so I knew I wanted to go south. He lived in Mexico. So, and I had some basic understanding of Spanish. So it was yeah. like, where do I want to go down? And, um, I knew El Salvador was the worst and, uh, you know, I would, I would go there now, but it was like, I'm not going to go there. It's so dangerous. Honduras right next to it. Probably not. And I looked under it and I'm like, hmm, Nicaragua. Okay. I'm going to go there. <laughs> Dude, that's so ballsy as a gringo. How many other like white boys did you meet around there? Not a lot. No, <laughs> only Europeans. Like what you said, the, the European reference with hostels and stuff. Yeah. I just, I slept on beaches You know, I had a backpack and my skateboard. So it was, I'm sleeping in hammocks. I made forts on the beach out of palm trees. Um, I just really bummed it. And I met a lot of Europeans and 
maybe one or two from six or seven months of traveling I met. I think the only time I met Americans were when they were together in a group on a school trip. So you were really just alone on that, huh? Just going wherever? Alone the whole way, yeah. What are you deciding to do? Like, Because you seem, the calendar reference, man, seems very much like your personality in the short time that I'm knowing you. Organized, almost like, um, um, what is it called? Um, a, is it a personality? What, what's the like super anal, yeah. everything has to be the right way? Yes, but no. This is, this is what I think about it. You, if you go into something and you don't know what you're going into, you're going to get hurt, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to know the rules in order to break them. So what I did was I created a doc, very type A, of Nicaragua. A. And yeah. I had my flight and everything. And I, what, what, what dangers are in Nicaragua? What to avoid in Nicaragua? What hostels to stay at? What's to see? What are the attractions? Waterfalls, volcanoes, everything I could figure out. What's the currency? Um, you know, like don't avoid... Don't go in the blue taxis, but go in the black taxis, that type of thing. Learning all of the street smarts there from other travelers before I go so that I can have an open book. So I did my homework beforehand, uh, and then I got there, and I'm like, who can fuck with me? You know, if someone tells me to get in a black taxi, I'm not getting in that one. I already know. Like, get out of here, dude. So you're like, yeah, then all of a sudden it's it's training. You're just Neo in the Matrix. You're yeah, just- I was just free game. People would be like, hey, you want to take a bus nine hours north? Like, I got nothing to do. Let's go. And then the next day, they're like, hey, you want to go three hours east to some volcano? I'm like, let's do it. And it was just every day doing whatever I wanted. Tell me, what's what's the thing with the taxis? Oh, that was just an example. Like, for example, in Panama, they have what what's called these Diablo Rojos, um, which is a school bus that they paint amazing graffiti on and very, very, like, nice artwork. You should look them up. Um, but they're the most dangerous. It's like half of a quarter to get across the city. So there's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of robbery that goes on inside the bus because it's like for the very, very poor class. Um, this is the cheapest transportation you go on and they just pack people in there. Why would they, but if it's so cheap and the people are poor, what are they robbing from them? Wouldn't you want to set it up to get like richer people on there? Cause they would actually have assets well they have buses for that the greyhounds you know so you can take a cab to the greyhound bus stop but if you're someone that is working for like four dollars a day and you're cleaning someone's house as a maid you can't walk there and you don't have money for a taxi because it's going to cost you a day's worth of wages so you hop on diablo rojo and they just there are these buses that just circulate no yeah but what i'm saying is if you get if you get on that bus and that bus is a you're going to get robbed situation. Why would they create a, you're going to get robbed situation where they're fishing in poor people? Wouldn't you want to figure out a way to get the rich people off the Greyhound so that you jack them for their wallet or their money or their whatever watches jewels? Oh yes. You see, they're not, they're, that's their environment. That's the thing. You're stepping in their territory when you get on that bus. So then they know it's like this, this guy's not from around here. Oh, uh, so you're foolish enough to be like, hey, this was a cheap little thing. And then all of yeah. a sudden you're got, got you, got you. Now you got your backpack and your wallet and a knife, you know, so you don't want to do that. Okay. Got, that makes sense then. I see what you're saying now. Like people just wouldn't understand it and they'd be like, oh man, I'm saving but if, like Yeah, if you're a tourist and you go there and you're like, wow, this is such a lovely looking bus. Let me just hop on it and go down. <laughs> it's cultural. 
It's culture. Yeah, let's ride watch. one of these. I'm sure you can ride it and nothing's going to happen to you. I'm not saying you're going to get on it and get robbed, but yeah. that's you have better chance getting robbed on that thing or being in certain parts of the city, you know, uh, just like in Chicago. Chicago's like people die every day in Chicago. People die every day in, in Phoenix. Um, you know, I live in the Valley, but I make a decision to where I don't want to be in that certain part of the city. And I'm not saying that I'm above those people or not, but there's a clear difference of if I go to a store on, you know, central Phoenix, than if I go to it over in like the Gilbert area, so to speak, because the roads are paved. It's nicer. Uh, there's not homeless people sleeping in tents everywhere you walk. There's not someone. I remember I went to go pick up some something on uh, offer up. I went to go buy like a, a chair or something. And I'm sitting at a stoplight and this guy's walking across the, the street in shorts and a pistol fell out of his shorts <laughs> just right there. And I'm like, this is why I don't go to this side. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to put myself in those positions to where I'm going to get robbed or shot or anything. So to save $40 on a chair. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so you got to have some street smarts. Right. Yeah. That's funny, man. Cause a lot of times they can come across when you express that as uppity. But I think if people had choices, if people could have a means to get out, like you would, nobody would want to be around that environment. Nobody would want to suffer and feel that kind of fear, be on high alert, have that kind of stress. Like yeah. you're not choosing that. Like the fucking sub suburbs are popular for a reason. Gated communities are popular for a reason because there's this sense of, ah, yeah, we can just fucking barbecue and chill and we're not going to be bothered. Your car's not going to get broken into or like, oh, did I lock my car tonight? Or you're laying in bed and you're like, shit, do we, you know, are the windows locked? Or you can't even open your windows at night because you live on like the first floor of an apartment and you're afraid that someone's going to rob you. Like that's, those are not good feelings. And, um, I've had some unfortunate events to where I just don't want to put myself in there in that position. Yeah. Such as ask the nosy podcast host. Uh, there was this one time in Nicaragua within the first like 48 hours of me flying into Managua. And, um, I met a blonde haired, blue eyed French Canadian, uh, French Canadian. Can I pause and you? Because that's like the flip of how Liam Nielsen's taken. The plot. What's from that? that? Have you seen? Have you seen Taken? Uh, I know. I think I have, but I don't know the Dude, plot. Dude, see, this anything. is why you're so much more successful than me because I just, I just fucking piss away too much time. But basically, his daughters, um, wherever they go, Spain, Portugal, this, and he might not be French. Maybe he's Bulgarian. This attractive youth scoops up these women from the airport. And then talks about where they are, and then they get kidnapped for sex trafficking. And then Liam Nielsen comes over and saves them. So when you're saying like this blonde haired, blue eyed friend, you're like, oh shit, dude, you're about to get like fucking, you're, you're about to be trafficked. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I showed up to the hostel. Um, actually, two events crazy that happened in the same 24 hour span. So I get off of, I get at the airport, I take a cab. First thing I do is go to a gas station and get a phone chip so I can have local. Um, phone service. Oh yeah. And then uh, the cab took me to the hostel. Actually, dropped me off at this bus stop, the main bus stop in Managua. And I walked with my back, with my huge backpack, had everything, my whole life in that backpack, and my skateboard. And then whenever I got there, 
I remember just having a beer by the pool and this couple comes in crying and they said that they walked from the bus stop that they had got off of to here, same route that I took and people with machetes circled them and um, wanted, basically took their backpack, took their passports, took their whole life. Oh, and um, yeah, they were stuck at that hostel. They ended up, I'm still in touch with these people now too. Uh, they ended up being stuck at that hostel for like two months, three months. And I went back specifically to that hostel just to hang out with them because I wanted to see them. But um, that next day, or even that night for sunset, we were like, let's go to the coast and let's watch the sunset. Uh, so this French Canadian girl and this other girl were like, let's walk. And they had these fat Canon cameras around their neck. And, you know, they're not American, but they were like, yeah, we traveled. We, they were alone. And they were like, we know how to do this. You know, we're not afraid of nothing. I was like, well, neither am I. Shit, let's walk. So we start walking. We have this little paper map of like, you know, the city and we're looking at the streets. And then all of a sudden there's like tires being burned on the street. And then there's no more roads and it, the sun's going down. So we're like, shit, we've been walking like three miles. And then, <laughs> you know, we're turning down the street. And then now there's people, this is what I'm saying. I, I saw kids like laying on the curb and um, houses being like blown up like just a house demolished, you know, I don't know if it was blown up or if it was just construction, but it's like, <laughs> looked like, like some fucking scene in Afghanistan, you know? And and then it was like, wow, like we're in a significantly different place than we were th 20, 30 minutes ago. Right. And then we made a left-hand turn down this hill and there was like 15 people in a group, like all male, big, and they were just like huddled in the middle of the street. And as soon as we turned down that street, all eyes were on us and we had a decision to make like do we keep walking and we're talking to ourselves like what do we do we turn the fuck around because it's kind of scary and they're like no you got to walk like you know where you're going like they're not going to mess with us so we're walking right into this down this street uh dead end and yeah they circled all of us they separated us where they like a couple people would circle around the girl other people would circle around the girl some of them circle around me and we just kind of kept walking and um, I thought literally that I was going to get stabbed or I didn't have anything on me. I had a tank top and board shorts and flip flops because I knew I was like, I'm not going to buy anything, whatever. Like, what can they rob? Yeah. And um, one of the guys in that group said something very loud and immediately all of them stopped and like went back to their little huddle, like circle. And uh, they left us alone. But they were like kissing up on the girls, touching them, very like being sexual. They didn't touch me, but they were kind of antagonizing me, saying shit to me. Yeah. And I kept like, no, it's okay. Just I just kept smiled at him, kept walking, and then like I said, one guy said something, and they all left us alone. But that was like one of the one of the scariest moments of that trip. <laughs> Dude, that's true. And did you ever make it to the beach? <laughs> oh yeah, we made it. It was dark, and we <laughs> sat down. That was it, but we took a cab back. I was going to say, I was wondering, my next question was going to be like, what was the walk back like? <laughs> yeah, we did not do that. But I never went back in that spot. And I, I skated in the street. You know, I, I went, I did my own thing. I, I wasn't really, I didn't care where I was at because, I, but I did use street smarts where, I, but with that one time I was with those two girls and, I don't think I would have done that alone. I'm not going to blame it on anybody else, but like that was some crazy shit where it's like being in, in Chicago or being here in Phoenix and you know, damn well, you're not supposed to be in this you know, kind of neighborhood where you're like, I don't belong here. You know, and yeah. if you're in a foreign country, 
you don't know anything because it's all foreign. But yeah. if you're here in the States, you know the bad parts from the good parts. Yeah. And that was when we went down that street, it was like, you can tell. You're like, we should not be here. Yeah, there's like a – well, and then there's also just something within people, your gut. The vibe, yeah. Yeah, where you're just like, nah, man, this don't feel right. And you, sometimes it's – I guess it's good to push past into discomfort at some points. But then at other points, it's like, nah, man, you got to learn to trust like this sense of imminent death. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and abuse. <laughs> like there's a difference between I can lift 10 more pounds on this bench press versus these 10 guys out here are just eyeing me up and I don't see anyone else around. How come no one else is out in this street? I wonder <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. No restaurants, no nothing. It was neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Right. God. Dude, but it's like, it's, it's all of these events that have happened, whether it be, you know, being caught in a rip current and out in the ocean for long time, or there's, I've had these like experiences on these trips that I've gone on to where it's like made me who I am today. And you take the good and the bad and make something out of it now. Um, and you know, whenever I came back, I started a nonprofit called NESW now evolving skateboarding. And the whole purpose was to go back to these types of places, to go back to Nicaragua and Leon where I met skateboarders and they literally gave me the shirt off their back because they wanted me to have their own little local skate shop shirt, you know, and, um, they don't have money for skateboards or anything or even a skate park. So it's my mission. It's my duty to like serve my community and be able to go back and build a park for them to be able to go back and like offer programs to teach, you know, about finances and, and entrepreneurship to help them. And, um, that's, that's what I would like to do is go back to these places and, and serve them. And build those relationships through skating? I build a lot of relationships through skateboarding, traveling. That's why I love skateboarding, man. I, I didn't have to speak the language, even though I did, to make a friend. All I had to do was do a cool trick, and they were like, all right, that guy's legit. Yeah, so – and that's something I'm so I, – I, I, maybe I could get on a longboard and make it down a hill. If I focused really hard and had my like tongue out and my arms out by my side, maybe I'd make it with a helmet and some elbow pads. But help me understand because you had said you were um, sponsored at an early age. So in Delaware, we have a bunch of skimboarders. So I do teach and coach a bunch of skim kids. We call them jetty rats. And like they get sponsored. And it's I, you can see them on a board and I can understand, but I don't know the lingo. So help me to understand just a little bit of the skateboarding lingo that – puts you on is elevated status a stupid thing to say or that makes you well, legit. so you you can t definitely go to the skate park and tell a real skateboarder from like a poser or someone that you can tell if there's someone has been skating for many years or their day one you know um, everybody has their own unique style and there's a difference where you know skateboarding grew up in the streets very hash and like rough there weren't parks growing up, you know, when skating first started. So to be out as a skateboarder in these countries on their turf, um, say, say if, if I go to a skate park where you're at and they have locals there that you grow up at that park. So, you know, every crack, you know, every, how the ramps are, you become a master at that park. Uh, if I were to show up to it, it'll be much harder for me to get adapted to it really quick. Um, like a, like a local would. Okay. So you go to someone, some place like Nicaragua that doesn't even have a skate park. 
they've thrown together like a makeshift rail that the local welder welded together. There's a little shitty three set. So you're skating on their rough terrain. So the good skaters there know the good tricks and they, they can make, they can make something out of nothing basically. And you can, they make it out of, you know, they, they're really good at skating on something so shitty. So to get there and then, uh, not in like a cocky way, but be better than the best locals there. Yeah, yeah. That's when they're like, Oh fuck. Like this guy, he knows what he's doing. You know? And it doesn't lead to like fights. Like it doesn't come across as um, arrogant. It comes across in a respect way in these countries. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I guess it just depends on who you are, right? I wanted to build relationships <laughs> with them. But That's the guy point. who I actually ended up skating with, uh, I met him and another guy at a park and we became really good friends. And they said, hey, we're actually, we live like six hours north do you want to take a bus back with us and we'll show you around Nicaragua how we know it? We like, we won't, we'll take you to places that no locals know about. And I was like, let's do it. You know? And this guy come to find out was in prison and, um, the worst prison in Central America. He spent a lot of time there. He showed me like stab wounds and, um, he was the skater there, but he got put in prison for, for drugs and nobody messed with him. So whenever I went back there, one of these most dangerous parts, I got to go out and experience local nightlife. Uh, and, you know, I got to like drink and not worry about being mugged or taken advantage of because whenever I was with that guy, people had respect for him. He was like the, the king in that area because everybody respected him. And um, he took me under his wing just because of skateboarding. That's insane. That's an insane. I, I don't know if it's the only thing I can reference it to is basketball. But I'm, I've never been a baller, so I've never gone to like – it would be Rucker Park in New York where you hoop with someone, you beat someone one-on-one -on -one or whatever, play five, and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, we're going to hang out. It's it's pretty crazy that that's a part of the skate culture. Or yeah, at least the I mean the, the skateboard community is so amazing. You know, we're in, we're in June. We're in Gay Pride Month. People want to come out. You want to be a girl or guy or both or whatever – you're there's like hate crimes now you know there's this asian hate black lives matter we're dealing with so much stuff right now but you do not see that in the skateboard community you can have one arm and people look at you as if you have two you know i know people that you can find skateboarders online that don't have any legs and are better than some people that do have legs um you it, you know there's no it's just if you're a good person there you, you are welcomed i actually just made a video i haven't posted it yet I'll be posting it on my social media soon. Um, yes, or well, we're on Wednesday already. Monday was Go Skate Day, International Go Skateboarding Day. And um, I went out with my nonprofit to the skate park. We donated a bunch of boards. And I went around and asked people, what life lesson have you learned from skateboarding? And one of them said, you can be a beginner. You can be an expert. Everyone loves you and they're accepting of you. And you're not judged. When you're in the skate park, you're not judged. The only time you find problems is if you're the one causing problems in the skateboard community. Oh, causing problems. So the big wave surfer thing is whatever. You don't know the unwritten rule of cutting someone off the mm -hmm. whole like rotation of who gets to catch what wave when I'm not a surfer guy. I'll whatever puts around the waves, but I hear these stories and I like it, it, it makes it, it makes it so that I don't want to learn. I have interest in it, 
I'd rather go skim because it doesn't seem like I have to battle someone for a fucking set where you go surfing, there's 30 dudes out there and you're trying to, everyone's trying to catch a wave and there's some weird hierarchy. And it's not like that. You could just be a dumbass and like try to learn and people just respect the effort when you're skating, huh? Um, it's like that. They, it, you know, that's surfing etiquette and there's a skate etiquette as well. It's an un, unsaid rules at the skate park. But whenever you're a newbie or something, then like I said, there are, skateboarders are inclusive. If they see that you're in the way or something, they're not just going to tell you to, to like fuck off. They will be like, hey, man, this right here, a lot of people skate this area. So if you're going to chill, I would put your water bottle and your phone like up over there. If you're going <laughs> to hang out, hang out over there. And then you start seeing, um, like how you said, you don't cut someone off on the wave. You know, whoever's on the inside takes the wave. And the same thing applies with skateboarding. You don't set your skateboard up on the rail and just stand there because people are like grinding on that. Um, and if you go now, you have to look and see who else is going. So you're taking notice of everyone skating. And if you're the only one going, 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 you fall and then you go again. It's like, dude, what is this guy doing just in the middle of the bowl snaking everybody? That's what they call it. Snaking. Okay. So you take a run, you get back in line and you wait. And if there's nobody, then you can do whatever you want. You know, less people at the park. But if you're at a jam-packed session, especially something with like a half pipe, you know, yeah, it's one at a time. One person gets the ramp. As soon as they fall, the next one's in, and then the next one. So you know, okay, there's 20 people in line here. I'm going to take a run, and then I'm not going to go. And if you don't see anybody going, then you can go again. But you don't want to be that guy just keep cutting people off. That's Those are the people where you'll be told what you're doing, and then if you keep being that guy and you're being like – you're just getting in people's way. You're going to totally get rejected by the skateboard community. It's going to be like, dude, get, like fuck off. Yeah, no doubt. Wait. No doubt. Can't pick up on the social cues. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I asked you, man. How did you get into skating or skateboarding? Uh, yeah. So my brother got me into it initially. We lived in Tampa and there's a big skate park in Tampa right there. So we used to watch like all the old pros before there was a Tampa pro Tampa am saw like Bam Margera and just like a bunch of old skaters. And then, um, that was first grade. So then whenever we moved back to North Carolina, we lived on a mountain, couldn't do that. Got a dirt bike for Christmas. And my dad got us into racing motocross. And then it was like, we were training motocross and we had like a track in our backyard. And we were, oh, if we weren't riding dirt bikes, we were in the shop fixing the bikes. And then we were, you know, had like the whole enclosed trailer decals and we were traveling, going to like the Cleveland County Fair racing. And um, if you were to get tickets right now to go see a Supercross event in the beginning, if you go early, there are the younger bikes that race on the track. And that's what we did this is the arena cross because um, we were I was little like a 65 cc bike. But we raced and raced. Let me pause you for a minute, man. Why? Um, why was it so serious? Is your dad like an extreme sports guy that he's just trying to pass on to you? Are there some life lessons here? Or were you, as the kids, kind of driving this um, ambition? Yeah, we drove it. We liked it and we were getting good at it. So he saw that and he was like, all right, well, I'll put you in lessons. And then we go through like training camp for a week with, you know, Gary Bailey. Uh, and then it's like, wow, okay, now we're winning trophies and it's nothing on a professional level, but it was like, when we go and race, we were, you know, hitting podium or something. And 
that was what sparked it. And then we started getting into the series where it's not just one race, but you start racing every weekend at different tracks in different States. And then the winners get like the, the overall points. So we started racing for points and, um, yeah, that was a, a huge turning point because I really thought I was going to be a pro motocross rider. And I, that, I still, to this day, I love motocross, but parents got divorced. My dad moved to Mexico. And at that moment, you know, the, the shit's not, it's not cheap, you know, to race. It's a, it's a hundred dollar entry ticket per person to get in at least. And then you're paying gas and oil. And I mean, it is a very expensive hobby. And then you break a clutch or, you know, yeah, you have to change your say, pistons. Just the equipment it's, itself, aside from it's the crazy entry. expensive, you know, boots are three or $400. Um, oh, shit. so whenever my parents divorced and my dad moved to Mexico, it was like garage was empty, trailers gone. The dually was sold and that was it and then we moved houses so we didn't have the little track anymore and i was left sitting in my garage and um i saw my skateboard that my brother gave me from florida back in first grade and at this point i was now in sixth grade so five six years had passed and um i was like i was pissed off that my that i couldn't race anymore i was upset that my parents were divorced you know i was in fifth grade so i understood it but i couldn't really understand it right and my brother left with my dad to move to Mexico. So my two best friends had just left the country and I didn't get to see them anymore. So I was just kind of left alone. And, um, I used skateboarding as a, as a way to have my outlet. And I was I told myself, whenever I see my brother again, I'm going to be good enough to where he wants to skate with me. And that's what motivated me to skate. And then it got to the point where my brother was like, dude, you're too good. I don't want to skate with you anymore. Let me just film you. <laughs> <laughs> dude, I, I, what was the trying to grab a sponsorship like at that young age? Do you go to a tournament and people are approaching you or do you have this like ambitious business savvy that you have now where you're like sending out videos and emailing, cold calling people? Uh, no, we lived in a, like a town and I had a local hippie shop that sold boards and, um, they were like a little, they were called grassroots and, uh, they sold clothes, they sold random knickknacks and skateboards. And I basically just walked in and I said, Hey, I compete. I won my last competition. Here's a video that I made for you, which was like super shitty. <laughs> and, um, I was like, will you sponsor me? And he said, yeah. And then I just ended up getting decks whenever I wanted. I would run the shop whenever they would, you know, leave. And, um, whenever I would go to competitions, I would wear their clothes that they gave me and I would hand out stickers all around town. Uh, I was like a representative for them. Yeah, yeah. But it was just a little, little sponsorship. I didn't have to pay for my boards anymore. And at the time I was going through skateboards, like once every shit, like every couple weeks or, or less. Do they crack like that? When I'm you're so, skating a lot, yeah. I'm so ignorant, man. Like, I mean, it just, I, I'd be the poser fucking snaking people or whatever. Um, <laughs> it I just depends. Okay, yeah, because I didn't realize that, like, you would go through decks like that. I was skating big stair sets and rails and kind of doing anything and everything, and my boards would snap. And, um, yeah, it would just keep snapping. And my mom, that's, I think that's what started because my mom was like, you got to find someone to give you boards because. <laughs> I can't sense. keep paying 60 bucks for a deck every two weeks. Dude, I've always wondered that you see these guys, whatever, finding the stair rails and they, they have so much velocity and then just weight coming down and this board 
never uh, on the videos never seems to break and bend and it it boggles my mind man i don't understand physics enough to understand why not but apparently it does they just don't post those videos yeah oh yeah tons of slams you know if you land on the tail the sweet spot is right on the trucks where the where the bolts go and like the metal pieces attached to the wood if you land on that you're fine as soon as you land in the middle or on the nose or something with enough force I mean, you can jump on it and, and break it if you wanted to, just on the ground. Okay. Huh. You step on it hard enough, it'll crack. Do you make fun of people who wear helmets? No, not at all. I mean, I, <laughs> not at all. I actually, I still have, I bought one and then my nephew started using it. Um, so I don't use it anymore. But I have knee pads and a helmet. Um, I, I also have like 14 plus concussions. And I've also had a seizure from skateboarding. No shit. Oh, that put me out of school for like four or five months. No way. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was Easter. No one was at the skate park because everybody's having Easter brunch with their family. And I didn't really care to be with my family. Um, you know, and I don't know. I just was like, I want to go to the skate park. So I go to the skate park. Nobody's there. I brought my bike because uh, BMX was the closest thing that I had to motocross. So I would just switch off between my skateboard and bike. And then I just remember, I don't even remember it. Honestly, I hit a, <laughs> I hit one of the, I hit one of the ramps face planted and it was rough gravel at that park. It was not like a smooth concrete. And I just remember waking up in an ambulance and a paramedic just pushing my head down. And then I woke up in a hospital and then I woke up in a different room. And I think I was transferred to like two different hospitals um, before I actually like came to it. But what had happened was someone was like smoking weed in their car and saw that whole thing happen, come over, <laughs> checked my backpack, uh, wanted to steal my, my phone and my money, but they saw that I was foaming out the mouth and I was unconscious. So instead they called 911 on my little phone and then left. And then burnt. So yes. that guy, dude, this is an insane story. Like, Anybody listening to this, can, they can believe it or not. But how I know that is because fast forward, I'm at an AA meeting uh, in in rehab at an AA meeting. And this and after the meeting, this guy's like, dude, you look really familiar. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, do you like skate or like what? And I'm like, yeah. And then he was like, I think we know each other. Like I saved, I think pretty sure I saved your life. And he Stop. told me the whole fucking story. Uh, because him and I were, he was the only other guy at the skate park skating and then he left and I thought he just left, but apparently he went to his car to like smoke weed and, and just get high. And he was like, yeah, dude, I was at a really shitty point in my life. Now I'm sober. And that was like one of the turning points where I was like, dude, as soon as I saw the phone coming out of your mouth, I knew I had to call the police and I, I was, but I was going to steal your phone and like take your shit, man. No and I was like, well, thank you that you didn't. Cause I probably <laughs> would be dead. <laughs> just fucking left there. But that was, that was years later. Yeah, and I don't know what I – I still think about that today. I Honestly, I think I would be dead because there was no one at that park. It was Easter. No one was around, and um, I was unconscious. Do you remember what you were trying to pull off or how you got hurt? No. I remember there was this little fly box, and I just loved getting as much air as I could on the bike. So I imagine I just launched off of it and face-planted. Gotcha. But my brain bruised – the whole prefrontal cortex. And I remember for like the next six months, I, 
I was, even now I have sensitivity to light. Um, and I had to do a whole bunch of brain scans and get tested for seizures. And it's a whole, whole other thing. So we'll see what happens in the long run with that. <laughs> do you worry about that? Oh yeah. Because man, your fucking mind seems quick as hell right now. Like what's the concern? Well, you know, like I said, I do have done so much harm, whether that be bullying someone or just like experience, like using just random drugs. You know, I got into doing like dumb shit very young, not like sticking needles in my arm or anything. But whenever I found out through someone that you can drink NyQuil and, and like feel really good off of it, I just would go and drink a whole bottle of NyQuil, you know, um, experiment with that stuff. And then it got into like, psychedelics and going to six flags on LSD and mushrooms. And I love the experience of, of, but I was just a young, stupid kid. And then that was when I had that turning point. Um, so now I'm like, I don't drink, I don't smoke. I I'm, I'm clean because I value where my life's at and, and I appreciate the doing it. And I, I'm not encouraging anyone to do drugs or anything, but I do believe you have to take risks and you can't be that person that says no to everything. You know, I'm, I'm always the person to say yes, at least once. Um, you know, not like I'm going to jump in front of a bus or again, stick a needle in my arm, but I've bungee jumped. I I'm licensed scuba diving. So I've swam with sharks. I've jumped out of airplanes. Um, you know, anything. I, I love it. I'll jump off cliffs. If I see someone do it and they're like, yeah, you can jump off this cliff. It's deep enough. And I see one person do it. I don't care how high it is. I'll go and do it just because I'm like, well, he lived. I'll go and do it. <laughs> but hard to be the first person, huh? That first yeah. person's so fucking brave, man. That that first person to test the depths. That's like, those are the people that I want to be Navy SEALs in our country. Because it's like, dude, you're next level. You're, you're fucking, <laughs> your testosterone is next level. But yeah, you have both sides of the coin. You can't you have to know what's wrong in order to know what's right. And um, you have to know good from bad. If you're always saying no to things, if you're always reserved, like what kind of life is that? Um, yeah. Jim Rohn, again, I like referencing him. He talks about it's better to live 30 years of adventure than a hundred years safe in the corner. You know, if, if you're protected, if you're sheltered, if you're always given food, but you're in the same spot and you don't get to experience things, what's the point of living a hundred years if you never get to see the world because you're afraid of, getting robbed or, you know, you have to go and do it. There's always going to be a risk, but you can have a heart attack sitting at home, you know? Yeah. It, it sedentary lifestyle kill you just as easily as a plane ticket will. Exactly. And I think people use that as a, as excuses sometimes where like, Oh, I don't want to do this because this is dangerous and whatever. I'm just going to sit here and on my fat ass and, and play video games. Yeah, man. And get that like different, um, I don't know that avatar experience of life. It's um, it made me feel like an old man. It was one of the first times I felt old where I couldn't understand why kids were watching other people play video games. And I'm like, this is what you fucking do. And then, then I started thinking, I'm like, well, dude, I grew up watching sports center and I grew up watching other people play basketball and their highlights but then like in my head, I'm like, well, all that did was make me want to then go be active and then go try to do that shit on a basketball court, right? Or with our friends. But I'm like, is it, is it any different? And I felt like the old man judging them to be like, you're trying to learn how to level up on whatever fucking Mario world. And 
You're going to spend an hour watching how someone beats a level. Doesn't that take all the fun out of you actually beating the level? Cause now it's just, you're following directions, man. You're fucking putting furniture together. There, there's no skill. There's no thought. There's no conquest. It's a guarantee level up. Why is that enjoyable? And you know, the, the, whatever the 11 year old that I'm talking to about this in this very deep way, he's like, it's just fun. I'm like, all right, my fault. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I remember in middle school, we'd be at lunch and like, Hey, what are we doing today? We're all hanging out. They're like, yeah, we're all hanging out. Oh. And like, I was like, okay, cool. Like, that's it. I didn't think anything of it. And then after school, everyone's getting on the bus or walking home. I'm like I thought we we're all hanging out. They're like, yeah, we are. We're getting on and playing call of duty. I'm like, it's perfect out. Like, why don't we go and do something? Like, you guys, you don't want to actually hang out. You want to go home and play on headsets and play Call of Duty together. So I was like, all right, I'm going to skate park, right. and I just skated. Yeah. See, we would we would do that, but like we we'd have the boys, we'd hang out, we'd have a sleepover, and we do whatever like Tecmo Bowl, Super Madden, Madden like tournaments. Yeah. But it was at night when you just been doing shit all day. It wasn't the day. Do you know what exactly. I'm saying? Like that, that to me is the huge difference. Like I'm fine if you've been out all day, your body has been active, you've been challenging yourself to overcome some sort of uncomfort, discomfort. Cool, man. Now come home, eat a bunch of shitty food and relax because you've burned all those calories, right? Like I'm all about that, but that can yeah. be your three o'clock. Like, uh, exactly. and that's where I feel like I'm the old man. Maybe I don't get something. Or maybe like I do get something and kids just need to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But I was never that kid. I I couldn't I couldn't do video games. I like them, but to be that person that's expert at it and buying the different controllers and I'm like, I'd rather be playing in the mud or fishing or no climbing a tree. Just go paintball. Right. Like, yep. let's go make our own Call of Duty. Um, yep. That, that's so much better. All right. So you gave me a bunch of shit there, man, that I'm pretty curious about, aside from the extreme game things. Um, and as much as you want to talk about it, I don't mean to be any sort of, again, prying asshole, but the AA meetings. Um, so then you've had a moment where you had to commit to sobriety and go full out AA or what was, I guess, what was oh, yeah, going on was- in your life that got you there? Yeah, so it's all in that same time, like I told you, that turning point in, in high school. Um, so from like sixth grade, I would say like seventh grade, sixth grade summer to sophomore year, that was when like my friends, you know, someone gets introduced to weed. And then yeah. it's like, wow, weed's good. And then we start smoking weed together. And then we're smoking out of an apple before school. And then, you know, <laughs> other friends get addic- more addicted than others. And then, you start choosing who of your friends that in that group that you're going to hang out with. And then someone else finds something that they're like, Hey, we can get really messed up on this thing. And then it turned into like, what drugs are out there that you can get messed up on? And then it was a matter of studying it. And again, you know, very type a, I guess, at what point can this kill you? And at what point is this recreational? You know? So, um, I wasn't just eating just like, Uh, tabs of acid like I didn't know what it was it was like okay this is what the recommendation says of you know your weight and whatever and I'm trying to like piece this together like a little scientist or uh, I should only eat x amount of mushrooms 
before I like full on die. And, um, that was when I started just dabbling in it. And then it turned into, I would say I never had a de- dependency on anything. It was more of, like I said, recreational of, I liked going to six flags and taking an eighth of mushrooms and just tripping out on, on the roller coasters, um, or going, we had a lot of forest reserves. So oh, doing, shit. I was never the person to just do drugs, get high and sit in my room. I loved looking at nature and walking around and thinking and being in my head. And I always had really good experiences because I told myself, okay, I'm going to be fine. This is going to be great. And I always had a buddy who would watch me, who would be sober. (laughs) And I had someone that, um, you know, I had my my parents taken care of. Like, hey, mom, I'm going to be spending the night at Travis's house, whatever. Uh, You know, I'll be, I'll be, tomorrow we're going to do X, Y, and Z. I'll be back the next day. So I had, you know, solid. 24 hours of not being away from, you know, being away from my parents. But even though I didn't have like a dependency on it, I was doing it all the time. Um, and, and then I started mixing things where it was like, okay, I'm going to take my friends Adderall and then I'm going to get high. And now I'm skipping first period. Now I'm skipping, you know, the whole days of school and now I'm getting in more fights and, um, you know, I'm not, taking any of my classes seriously and I'm yelling at the teachers I'm getting detentions that I'm not going to so it really stacked up I remember I had like I believe it was somewhere near like 100 hours of of detention and I had to have that conversation with my dean and she said you're you want to graduate early and you have all these detentions and I'm like she's like I don't even think you can from the amount of time we have school days left you cannot serve these detentions so what are we going to do and um yeah, I think there was one point where one of my friends got too high and ratted on me with the school police because they were like, we have you on video. We know what you did. And he was like, okay, fine. It was Jacob. We smoked in his car. And then uh, I wasn't even at school that day. I had a doctor's appointment. So we smoked. <laughs> I went to the doctor's. By the time I got back to school, which was like the last period, um, I wasn't even high, you know? So I sit down and again, a pol- and my friend texts me and said, dude, we're, we're fucked, you know? Uh, the, the police officers have us, they're coming for you. And I, I was like, no, he's just messing with me. And then sure enough, as soon as I look up, there's an officer coming in my math class and put me in handcuffs, taking me. And then that was the turning point where I'm in the front of the Dean, in front of the cop, in front of my mom. And she had to take off work. So she was like, I'm going to bust his ass. Cause now I can't make money because of my stupid right. ass son. That's the worst. And they were like, you can go to court, which they're going to recommend rehab, or you can just put him in one of these programs. And she had all the pamphlets laid out. And my mom was like, well, which one works best? She's like, this one's the most strict program. Like, we're going at that one. And uh, that was it. Because that program was like, it wasn't like eight weeks or something, and then you get out. Because I was a minor, uh, I either stay there until I'm 18, or I had to prove myself to get out. So I learned very quickly, if I want to get out of this hellhole, I need to do what everyone says and I have to do it right. And then I'll get out. And that's when I made the decision. Okay. I'm going to get clean. I'm going to get out of high school. I'm going to get my associates. I'm turning my life around. And as I switched my friend groups, I mean, it's my whole life made a 180 turn and uh, I ran with it. All in that rehab pro because you went to that rehab and just removed yourself was able to like think long-term. Yeah. I was outpatient. It was three times a day. And Three times a day outpatient while you were in oh, I'm sorry, three times a week. Um, oh, but you had like, to hit. Damn, that's intense. I was like, oh. yeah. 
So three times a week, and then you had to hit AA meetings. And then if you get in trouble, which I did like the first two or three weeks because I didn't care about what they said, if you act out, now there's consequences. So I had like a uniform where I had to wear a suit every day. And and then (laughs) whenever you get in there, you have to give them your phone and you don't get any internet access and you get your car taken away. You get your, your life is taken away. They get access to your Facebook, your everything. So it was like you're walking in here, giving your phone, your car keys away, and now you don't get to do anything. Whenever I get back home, I don't get to go to my friend's house or play video games or get on my phone or social media, nothing. It's like all I get to do is think about why I'm in rehab. Oh, wow. And then aside from the rehab meetings, I have to go to AA. And then every time you're done with AA, you have to write a one-page essay on what you learned from that AA meeting. And that was three or four times a week. I can't imagine being an AA at that age because you're still oh, yeah, high it was school, weird. Right? I was the only young kid there um, because it's Alcoholics Anonymous and there's Narcotics Anonymous, but yeah. it's the fundamentals that you learn. And I went through the 12 steps with a sponsor. And again, this was all very young. Um, and I, like I said, I never had an issue where I was like overdosing or it was very minimal, just kind of fucking around dabbling with, with random substances, but it obviously it's not good. And then I got caught and uh, I had to change it. But going through the 12 steps, learning about whenever you have a step one is admitting you have a problem. I take that everywhere I go in life. If, if, if you're fat, you're fat because of you. No one else made you fat. If, if you're not making the money you want to make, that's your fault. You know, you need to have a different skill set. You need to learn. The knowledge is out there. You can read new books, get new skills, you know, um, and, and that's, you have to take accountability for everything that you do in your life. And I learned that through AA step one, you know, admitting you have a problem and then you go through all the 12 steps and I went through all of them and I graduated from that program within like six or eight months when usually it takes a, a very long time. I was one of the earliest graduates in that program because I was like, I felt like I didn't need to be there. I just got caught and then, you know. Yeah, that seems, I, I guess it was the history of the detentions or whatever that made it so severe, such a severe consequence for your boy diming you out. It's fucked up. But at the same time, yeah, like it's, it's, it's fucked up, but it's kind of beautiful. Do you think you'd be, you'd have this mindset if you had not been there? No, I changed my life for sure. It definitely, like I said, it made me turn a, a 180. You don't think it would have just happened naturally? Like you'd have been tripping out on a couch and had some sort of psychedelic revelation where you were like these fucking losers sitting around, you know, like you're 22, natty lights just all over the floor. And you're like, man, fuck this. Well, exactly. Yeah, I think that. But at 22, I had already traveled to 12 different countries and taught myself a new language and built my nonprofit. And, um, you know, I was well off well way better than the people like after i got out of the program i remember because nobody did the nobody did drugs in seventh grade eighth grade freshman year nobody like maybe they took a sip out of their parents alcohol drink but that's it so when that's why it was like oh he's like some does he do drugs he's a skater like fuck that guy and then it turned into people asking me hey jacob where do you get cocaine i'm like dude i don't i don't do coke what (laughs) that's what you guys thought i was doing is cocaine and heroin now you guys are doing this type of stuff like and i remember people asking me where to get it and that was like junior year my last year people asking me hey man i know you went through like that program um i'm addicted to heroin and like i need some advice i'm like dude i don't know what 
to tell you, I've never put a needle in my arm, you know? So it's and, funny. And I ironic any to connections. See <laughs> the same people that made fun of me for doing drugs are now doing drugs. But it was like, I learned that at such an early age where I'm like, I'm graduating high school a year early. And now you guys are 18, just now getting into drugs. And you're going to spend the next four years doing drugs in college. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm very happy and grateful that I got it out of the way at, at such an early age. Yeah, man, that's an interesting, um, you, cause you hear about that. It's an interesting perspective. You hear about the kids who were on lockdown all through high school and they're the ones that pledge a fraternity and get alcohol poisoning and have to have oh, yeah. stomach pumps or God forbid die. And you're like, well, why? Oh, cause they never, they were never able to experience and take that risk. And again, not condoning drug use, but I think just as you're growing up, there's something within you that wants to experience all sorts of shit. And me yeah. as a parent, I've had, I've had these conversations with other parents where it's like, wouldn't you rather have a kid fuck up at 14, 15 than at 18, 19? And, and a lot, a lot, a lot of the, and I only have one daughter, but a lot of guys who have sons are like, I'd rather have my son be the dumbest motherfucker at 15 while he's still a minor shit ain't permanent. I can step in and vouch for him. Then he towed the line cause he was worried about me and my discipline and he gets a little bit of freedom and he just goes fucking buck wild. Now he's a felon at 19. Like you don't hear about oh, yeah. felons at 15, you know, because typically you just that don't do that. You, you stop yourself. You're an adult like, now. Age. Yeah. And it's and an interesting. That. Yeah. It's a, it's just a real interesting, like, parental philosophy of protection versus not enabling, but like, like, I, I don't want to be the dad that fucking like says, bring all your friends over, come drink. I'll get the keg. You know, no one's driving. Like, I'm not trying to be that person, but I, I don't know, man. I like, I want to give my kid the opportunity to go out and like experience shit while they have that safety net. I feel there's a lot of value in that versus who knows wh who's going to be around you your freshman year in college when you decide to get blackout drunk and what happens to you. Yeah. Well, you know, in Europe, they drink whenever they're like 16. It's normal. Right. And parents will allow their children to drink wine um, in Europe at much earlier age, like 13, 14. So it, it becomes normal to have alcohol. And then you learn your tolerance very young whenever you have too much, too little. Um, that's why exactly. I didn't, I didn't give a shit about partying or college or being in a fraternity, being in the dorms. It's like to do what? Do drugs? And I'm like, I already been there, done that. You know, I don't need to do that. I want to go and travel and, you know, be on my term. And unfortunately, I do know people that went to high school uh, that have DUIs, multiple, and that in and out of jail, that have died and committed suicide and just like overdose. And it's like, damn, did, did that really need to happen? And it's unfortunate, but I, I take, you have to learn from all your experiences, you know? Yeah. It's, it, it, it really is unfortunate when you try to find yourself past the age that you were meant to, it almost makes me wonder just something in human nature. Like I, I, for some reason I'm thinking of the lions that just keep like fucking with their parent. Like you always see that video of the one lion on top of the savannah and the babies are biting at their ears and they're just experiencing how much they can do and get away with before the repercussion comes. <laughs> and then they always reach that limit where the mom just rolls over. Pow! And then the lion, and then the lion never fucks with them anymore. 
And it's like, imagine if that lion did that with an alligator. You'd be terrified if the alligator snapped at him, right? Like you'd almost yeah. want that experience to happen closer to home, man. But at the same time, you don't want to foster it. I don't, it's just, I guess it's just me and my dad brain, like rambling about, I don't know, like helping, you know, trying to foster a not too stringent of, a, of an environment where um, you rebel and you seek those extras. You know, you're like, yeah, Coke, sure. I've never been able to do anything. Let's do it all. And you're like, whoa, man, exactly. get going, going a little too far right now. You know, like maybe, maybe stop, maybe stop at psychedelics at the worst. <laughs> you know, yeah. let's stop there. Dude, I, 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 what made you start the um, nonprofit? Was that like your dad's idea or how did you come about that? No, that was seeing so many people in need around the world that I wanted to help. And uh, I noticed that, you know, I've given people my skateboard and I went and bought another skateboard, like the guy in Nicaragua. You know, I've given people my clothes that needed clothes. And um, I bought, I remember one time I was walking back from a, a club uh, very late at night, maybe like 2 or 3 a.m., and again, I felt safe there because I knew the I knew the guy, and I was alone at that point. Um, but everyone got accustomed to me because I had been there for like a week or two. So I'm walking, and I see this guy, and this little kid like grabs my arm. He couldn't have been more than like seven. He said, "I'm hungry." And I was like, drunk, kind of like, "Dude, don't touch me," you know. <laughs> and he was, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm hungry too." Like, kind of like an asshole. I was like, "I'm hungry too." Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm doing is looking for some street food. You know, and I just brushed it off and then he grabbed me and he's like, no, like I'm hungry. And then it like hit me and I got goosebumps and I was like, damn, like this, why is this kid sitting sleeping on the street? Like he was literally sleeping on someone's stair from a building. Right. And, um, I said, come on, let's go. Like, I need food too. Like we're, there's no food here. So let's go. So I was still on my mission to get food and we showed up to like some food truck and I sat him up with me like on top and immediately the guy was like, shoot, get out of here. Like in Spanish. I was like, whoa, whoa, he's with me because they knew him as the local kid that was homeless. Yeah, right. And uh, he's always begging for food at this food truck, I guess, that's open at 3 a.m. So I was like, no, 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 he's, he's with me. Like, he can get whatever he wants. And as soon as I said that, his, his like whole demeanor changed. And he was like, I want a cheeseburger <laughs> with cheese and I want this and give me the Coca-Cola and I want fries. And he ordered everything he could. And, you know, it was like, four dollars five dollars for his meal right. but him and i sat and ate a cheeseburger together and we said goodbye and um that changed my life that definitely changed my life i realized that i can give someone money you know if you're on a stoplight and you have cash you can give your money away you're not saying that you have to but is going is helping one person really going to change like world hunger by giving someone and this is what i think a lot of people don't understand about the rich they're like oh well he has millions of dollars why don't you just give it to you know give it to poor people because they don't know what to do with it they're not they they don't they would take it and waste it you know opportunity comes to those that are prepared you can't just go and give your assets to someone that's not prepared to take and to do something with it but what you can do is build something that can help uh, a bunch of people and that's what i'm doing with nesw is you know, every skateboard that I sell, instead of taking profits, I donate one to foster care and I donate one to someone in need um, instead of taking the profit. And then I use the leftover profit to 
have money for a food drive. So every Thanksgiving we go and, and deliver foods to families. And it's as simple as making a Facebook post saying, hi, we have free, free Thanksgiving meals includes everything from the Turkey to the mashed potatoes, to the whipped cream, you name it, it's included. Who's got a family that is in need and you just get flooded with inboxes. Hi, this, you know, this person, I remember one of them was like, the mom was murdered by the dad. There are three kids that are under the age and the cousins looking after them. They live in this trailer and like the dad's in prison now and the mom's murdered. I think this would be a great uh, Thanksgiving for them and we're delivering food to them and they don't even, and it's like the people that are messaging are doing it for other people. So then when we're delivering these foods, they have no idea that they're about to get hooked up with like right. cookies and pies and Turkey. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing experience. So that's, that's where it came from. It stemmed from seeing so many different just experiences, traveling and everything and wanting to help on a global level. And that's what we intend to do. I, I still, and forgive it for being like such a simple ass question, but like even just the idea that it's not arrogance, but I take it as intelligent arrogance. Why not just do it with like Venmo or PayPal? Like it's just such foresight to be a nonprofit. That's what I can't wrap my head around, man. Like how did you know the way to accomplish this goal was to have a nonprofit? I didn't, but I volunteered and I was part of nonprofits in, in high school. And um, I was always curious about, I'm like, if there's a nonprofit, who's getting all this money? You know? <laughs> That's it. So, and, and I guess that's part of it too, because I feel like so many people have ideas and maybe that's a better way to contextualize it. You just gave that to me because what I'm hoping is if someone listens to this and they're like, dude, I kind of have this vision and I guess I'm trying to figure out as an older guy, like, fuck man, why haven't I started a nonprofit for some of the things I'm passionate about benefit wise? So that, that, that oh, was, a, hard. you know, that was a better context, um, to give you, um, I'll, to give you context, to repeat myself. <laughs> well, you, you have to decide what you want to do in life and you want to find your passions. And I wanted to help people and I love skateboarding. And, um, you know, to figure out what you want to do, you, again, you figure out what you're passionate about. So you if, even if you're just good at, you know, IT and computers, you know, and, but you hate it, why would you pursue a, a job through that if you're going to be doing it? Um, so it really boiled down to, I love traveling, I love skateboarding and I love helping people. And uh, that's when I was like, I'm going to create a nonprofit. And it took a lot of work. But I knew being a 501c3 established nonprofit, I could receive donations, people can write it off, I can go and put on like events. And uh, as the founder, or as the president, I can build my board members, I can build my team, and then I decide what I pay myself, I decide what I pay the vice president, um, just as a CEO would, you know, you know, like Elon Musk, he pays himself whatever he wants, but I don't pay myself. If anything, I I've invested everything that I have and I work and I've worked for to put into the nonprofit to help, you know, help me understand the establishment process of a nonprofit. Cause I've never Googled it. Is it something you could Google and you're just filling out forms like based on your state or does the range yeah, you should go of through like the corporations commissions become an actual entity and then you're considered a nonprofit. You can pick C Corp, you know, you can pick whatever you want an LLC. I pick nonprofit, but if you want to become tax exempt, now you have to go through like lawyers and file paperwork through the IRS and 
get an employer identification number and the tax ID and that costs thousands of dollars and, um, you know, months, sometimes years of time. Gotcha. And so are you considering global goals or local goals with oh, yeah, 100%. Your, your picking? I guess that's what I'm wondering. Like if you're looking to do something on a smaller realm, like just stay within your own community, is there no, a way yeah, to- the, the name is now evolving skateboarding worldwide. So the, the idea is to go global. Um, but I have to, st- you can't, I have to help the people in my place now first. So I'm starting in Arizona. I'm, I'm donating boards to foster kids here. I'm helping the skateboarding community here get the attention. Then we branch to wherever, California. But yeah, once we have the assets to go global, definitely. I mean, Oh dude, I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't actually talking about your, your nonprofit in particular. I guess I was thinking if someone were to be starting a nonprofit, and they wanted to focus more local, would it be easier versus are there other ramifications of my end goal is to be global? I well, it's all state-based have- and federal, you know? So I'm a registered nonprofit in, in Arizona. Um, now, if I wanted to have a group working under my entity in where you're at, in your state, then I would have to file it in your state. Okay. So that's more money and more time and there's no point to it because I don't know skateboarders and I don't have the money to hire employees out there and volunteers. So yeah. I'm starting here, gotcha. but yeah. Gotcha. 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 Dude, that's again, it's just amazing to me. The, um, the ambition because paperwork's a fucking grind. People underestimate policy and paperwork, how much time drain to get those things done to actually do something as simple as give away Thanksgiving meals the right way through a nonprofit, man. And it's, um, yeah. it, it's super commendable. That's why I've, I've never done it. That's why I was trying to wrap my head around it a little bit. Yeah. It was just a way for, I mean, that just coming up with ideas of how we can help people. The, the, the long-term goal is not to give out Thanksgiving meals. The long-term goal is right. to be able to travel back to Nicaragua to that city, build a skate park, influence the community, maybe donate meals to them and leave it better than I found it. Man, that's ambitious. It's, um, I don't know. So I spoke to another guy that I got off of, um, found on Twitter, uh, Ravi. And like his whole goal was to Tesla is coming out with this, um, or maybe it's Elon Musk. It's not Tesla itself. Um, project X, the whole, can you build some sort of carbon capture thing and get a hundred million dollars to start your own company? Are you familiar with that? I haven't heard of it. Okay. Yeah. So his whole thing was like, he's some sort of biochemical engineer and he's like if i figure it out i'm just gonna post it even if i don't win the hundred million dollars and i'm like you're really okay with that he was like yeah man it would better the world and i'm like stop dude stop there's no fucking way you're okay with giving up he was like no seriously like the end goal is just to have the environment be good man it's not so much about the money and then you're another one of these young kids with all this ambition just looking to make a difference man it's um i don't know i I don't know why i take it as so uncommon it makes me makes me feel like i'm wrong for doubting the youth for caring y'all just seem so caring no i don't i'm I'm, yeah there's a reason why they call it one percent you know but there's a (laughs) there's always a possibility um and like i said i'm not if if there's if it's been done then it's possible, right? Yeah. It's not like one person has 
a billion dollars. There are multiple people in, in every country, well, not every country, but many countries that have billions of dollars. So you have to think that's 999 million you know, dollars. So 1 million to a billion is nothing. That's chump change. That's, they can, they can lose $30 million and not bat an eye. You know, yeah. that's like a candy bar. Yeah. Um, so you, when you put it into rel- like relative terms, many people are doing it and you have to choose, am I going to be on the poverty where I want to be living on government and paycheck and social security? Or what are these people doing? How are they living their lives? And, um, you want to learn from the people that do it. Right. So I'm, I'm studying people like Tillman Fertitta and, you know, Ty Lopez and Grant Cardone and Tony Robbins and Jim Rohn, you know, Jim Rohn spent his whole life just sharing his story and he died with a net worth of half a billion dollars, but it wasn't that he just had half a billion dollars. It's the person that he was. And that's what I'm most interested in. If I could just become a fraction of the person that these people are, then the money will come to me and I will never have to worry about, working a nine to five or putting my kid through college or, you know, retiring my mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Cause you just, why, why do you think that is? If you're just a good person, why do you think that kind of handles itself? Um, you know, there's a lot of things like those that knock shall find, um, you, you can't drift your way to the top of the mountain. You have to climb. I think if you, you put your energy where your mind goes, your body flows or something like that. So you want to put your energy out there. You know, you wake up, write your goals out, set your intentions for the day, uh, have a vision of where you want to be. Again, your goals can never be too high. So if your goal is to make a hundred million dollars and yeah, you only made 3 million, well, like you still have $3 million. But if your goal is to make $30 or most people goals are, Oh, if I could just pay rent this month, if I could just f- pay my phone bill, Oh, if I could just have enough money to buy groceries or get a new car, those are lousy goals. Yeah. And they always seem to have what their goals are. If they, they always seem to find money for rent and they always seem to find money for their phone bill and for cigarettes and for booze. What if you just found the money and found the resources to be abundant? That's what I'm after. God, Owning a resort. I've never, dude, I I should have asked you early on, man. How are you uh, doing on time? Uh, I do have to wrap it up. I have some things I have to do. All right. So before we get out of here, but I do enjoy this and uh, we should definitely hop on and talk more. Well, let's end it with this, Jacob, because I want to give you a little bit of time to tell a story, man, because I I do enjoy your stories. Um, I don't know if you enjoy my interjections as much as I enjoy your stories. Um, Let me get this to end the podcast. Can I get your best first for last? We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. My best first for last? 100%. Hmm, trying to understand what you mean by that. Most people do. So I lied to you at the, um, at the onset, my friend, when you said, is there a template? The only thing that I have like prescribed in my mind is this question. It's how I end my podcast. Because I think something really cool when you're getting to know someone is knowing about their first experiences. And best for last, I'm a fan of alliteration inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. I thought it was just a clever way to end the podcast. And the capitalist in me hopes it gets um, uh, like sponsored at some point. Like best first for last brought to you by Samsung. Uh 
But basically what I'm looking for is just a really cool first experience you've had that'll be the last thing people getting to know you will hear about on this podcast. Any first experience, huh? Wherever you want to take it. Yeah. Okay. So, but it has to be awesome. And if it sucks, no, I'm just kidding. Oh yeah. <laughs> so first experience, I, I remember, like I said, I was in the Galapagos islands. I didn't know about the Galapagos. I just looked on the map and I was like, I'm going to go from Nicaragua down to wherever. And I saw the, um, Easter Island where the stones are. And I saw Galapagos I started doing some research. I'm like, wow, blue footed boobies. I'm going to go to the Galapagos. <laughs> so I'm there. And now I'm like, who's this Charles Darwin guy? And like I said, I did research before. So I'm like studying about it. And I realized this is on people's bucket list. Like this is a luxurious place. This is not an Island where I was taking $4 boat rides in Panama. This is $45 boat ferry rides that are three minutes, you know, uh, this was very expensive. So when I got to the Galapagos, I immediately was like, I'm not going to have enough money to get out of here in two months. Cause I booked a ticket out for two months. So I'm like, I need Holy to find work. Shit. You were going to stay there for two months on the Galapagos Islands. Yeah. I stayed there for two months. <laughs> Holy shit. So immediately I'm like, I got to find work. I went to, um, I'm walking and I'm like, I'm going to go to the Charles Darwin center and see if I can work at the national park. And they were closed. The guy was like, sorry, we're closing up right now. Like you can't go into the park. So I turn around and I see this big iguana with a scuba tank and it said scuba iguana on it. I'm like, that sounds cool. Scuba dive. Yes. So I walk in and I do my little pitch. Hi, I'm Jacob. You know, hablo espanol. Yo puedo trabajar. Like I'm, I'm going to work for you for, for free. I just want the experience to like live here. And um, I'm going to be here for two months and I don't have any agenda so I can work for you. All I'm asking is like, maybe if you take me on the boats and teach me how to scuba dive. And they were like, um, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to think about it. Like you can come back tomorrow. I come back the next day. I'm on the roster for the, with the employees <laughs> and it's, you can't work. You can't work there. It's illegal. So they had me like work the volunteering, but I was washing wetsuits, filling the tanks, cleaning the boats, like everything. Right. And, um, I got to dive in all of the, all, every single dive site you can think of in the Galapagos. And that was, I'm such like, go, 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 you know, bungee jumps, hiking, jumping off waterfalls, whatever. And, uh, I learned to scuba dive. And that moment, I remember this, if you know anything about the Galapagos, like it is rated like top five places to scuba dive in the world. Most abundant species of fish, nothing's going to bite you or hurt you because there's just so much abundance of life. So swimming through schools of thousands of fish. And I remember at one point I'm under the ocean and when you, when you have your suit on, it's like the air on your tank, but you have air in your chest to make you neutrally buoyant. So you're under the ocean, but you're not sinking and you're not going up. All you have to do is kick your feet and you can just be like with the fish. And once you stay still and you control your breathing, that's all you do is focus on your breathing and just observe. And the simplicity in that, but the, like the scare, like how scary it is to be a hundred feet under the ocean. And if something goes wrong, you're fucked. Uh, that fucks with you. And I just remember having like a hammerhead shark come up and then other hammerhead sharks come up. And then it's like a tornado of like 
40, 50 hammerhead sharks that are larger than, than me. You know, they're like six, seven feet long right. and they're just circling you. And it was very euphoric and all you can hear is like, you know, like you're, you're just breathing and you can't do anything. It's not like you can swim up because the nitrogen levels in your blood, you'll have to go into this, you know, like incubation tank or I don't know what it is, the D I don't know. You have to go into some- I just remember from a Tom Cruise movie where you can't elevate so quick because your blood can't handle it. Exactly. Yeah. So I just remember the, the first time, you know, learning how to scuba dive, it taught me how to stay still. It taught me how to just be one and, and live in the moment right now and not think about anything except your breathing and um, seeing a different way of life. I never, like, I, I thought seahorses were like, in fairy tales, you know, but seeing a seahorse in real life, it, it changed me, you know, just being in a different world. It was very unique. Dude, that was my first time. I can't believe you spent two months on the Galapagos Islands. I had no idea that was even a possibility. Like, this is my, like, I just saw you jump over a cliff. Now I believe the water is deep enough for me to jump in. Not that I'm going to move to the Galapagos, but I'm going to get my fucking daughter to move over there or something. I had no idea that was a possibility. Yeah, you really can't do it. It's not allowed. You have to be there. It's very – you can't buy a house there. You can't do a lot of things in the Galapagos. It's a national park. So as soon as you get on right. off the plane, you are paying for a uh, national park ticket. Okay. And so where did you stay? I got a job at a hotel. So I got a job at the scuba dive place, and then I went to a hotel, and I said, hey, I'll wash your toilets. I'll do anything you want, but I can't afford to be here for two months. And I paid like three weeks, and then I was their receptionist. Oh, no shit. And I would skate around the island, and I would actually wait for people to get off the ferry and the bus, the tourists coming in, and I would hand out flyers and be like, hey, you got you need a hotel? Come to this hotel. I was the local on the island. Oh, okay. So, I experienced the Galapagos Islands as a local, not as a tourist, which was very interesting. So I've only experienced it through a video that I've watched in a seventh grade science class. And the thing I took away were the turtles. Yeah. Are there oh, these yeah. huge ass turtles. turtles that you like get to ride? You know, you don't get to ride them, but yeah, I mean, I have, they're huge. I've seen them. They're on my Instagram as well. Skateboard mentor. If you scroll down, they're there. Okay. God. But yeah. Damn, Jacob. All right, man. Jacob, dude, love the ambition. Please remember me when you have the resort. Um, let me work there in my retirement for my second income. I'd really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much, man, for so much of your time, for letting people get to know more about you. And um, more importantly for me, man, just being a young dude that's ambitious, driven, and articulate. It, it's, it's a great example for other people to hear. To, to like, you know, you're that first dude jumping off the cliff saying the water is that deep. Like hopefully other people are inspired to be like, I got a $3 million goal. I got, now I made 30,000. Well, that's great. Good thing. It wasn't just 30 bucks, you know, cause yeah. you set your goal so high. I love that mentality, man. Thank you so much um, for sharing it. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. And if you want to learn more information for anybody listening, you can go to the grindmentor.com for our programs or just follow me on Instagram, skateboard mentor. Yep. And all that will be in the description of the podcast. Thank you, man. Have a good night. Yeah. Do the same, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Jacob for coming on the Getting to Know You pod. Really appreciate your work ethic, energy, intelligence, message, and mission, my man. 
Keep grinding, bro. Keep grinding. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Search him up. It's Andre Psyche. I just say it because phonetically I feel that's how his name would be pronounced. It's Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E, on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Thanks to Dewey Crush, the summer's most sought out and coveted East Coast drink, for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Listeners, bring a case of Dewey Crush, the delicious, refreshing, ready-to-drink canned cocktail with you for your next summer event to be crushed! Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. You can also, and probably more importantly to the success of this podcast, go to our Patreon to support the pod for as little as $2 a month. If you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests, or if you want to support us in better editing, Fiverr? Fiverr? What did Jacob tell me about? That website where people who know what the fuck they're doing actually do things right. I would love to have sponsors that helped us to send the pod to be edited the right way. If you haven't already, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Word of the pod is, what else could it be? Galapagos. Galapagos is the word of the pod. Post. That word doesn't have to be spelled correctly on any of our social media or tag the Getting to Know You pod when you use it on yours to get a shout out on the very next podcast. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. Interested? Just message us. Later, skater.